This is not an expert podcast. So issues. Yeah. So now I'm going to I'm going to shift gears a little bit, okay? Um because I get it. I could hit you with depressing stats all day. But I want to um inspire hope as well. So we're here for that. Please give us the hope. I'm going to talk about renewable energy. Now, unfortunately, the two major, um, two major reliable energies that we we talk about all the time, solar and wind, as they exist right now, they cannot compete with coal. They get absolutely obliterated. It was like, um, it was like the Super Bowls with the Broncos and the Seahawks. It's not even close. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oof. Nick, what do you mean? Are you talking about what it takes like, to? generate one kilowatt hour of energy and how much um, it costs yeah th- yeah those two things they um they pale in comparison to coal however there's one super giant that can make uh that can make coal the broncos in this analogy etch- yeah. analogy i'm curious to know what it's it is hydroelectric i no, know we gave it up about 200 years ago but i'm telling you it's making a comeback <laughs> Uh, I no, can't it's wait to hear what he says. And it's nuclear, obviously. It's nuclear. Yeah, nuclear. Uranium alone is like a hundred, or a hundred times more efficient than coal. And the you thing is, is that attention. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna once again go into story time. Okay, so you know, in uh, in 1945. Uh, the U.S. dropped um, bombs on Japan, on Nagasaki, and Hiroshima. And this was the world's really first uh, first introduction to uh, nuclear power. And in the 1950s, um, we, we discovered how to sort of utilize it as an actual energy rather than, than just something of mass destruction that really really shouldn't ever be used oh yeah one pound of uranium has has as much energy as five thousand barrels of oil okay and in terms of i know that i'm probably getting ahead of us here but in terms of scarcity like availability versus uh usage um that's a good point um however uh i'm not going to be talking a lot about uranium because um, I'm looking towards the future of nuclear energy. I'm of just giving a little bit of context. I gotcha. Uranium is extremely unclean to use in a reactor. It, it it's, produces it's, a lot of byproducts that are extremely harmful to the environment. Yeah, it's. We'll get to that. Um, so as uh, as the Cold War starting started escalating, you know, Soviets had their own weapon by 1949, uh, I think. People were starting to get more and more afraid. Um, there was, uh, there was the duck and cover where there was just propaganda to where it was like, oh, if the nuclear blast hits, it's going to be, it's going to be, it's not going to do too much. But, um, the, the effects of nuclear, of nuclear weapons had, um, scarred the world. Um, and, uh, many liberal, uh, environmentalists saw nuclear power as too dangerous. Like, they saw that, um, oh, it's 
it could it will kill every single one of us because it's just like a bomb which it's kind of but not really <laughs> um so there there were a lot of protests against nuclear power and this all came to a head when uh, the free mile uh, the free mile island incident happened it was the uh, the first major nuclear disaster in the world and you you hear um, stories of Free Mile Island, and it, they sound absolutely horrible. Like this is why nuclear energy shouldn't be trusted. But it really, like, it was bad. But it wasn't as bad as, say, burning fossil fuels are. And oil companies took advantage of this, um, and they knew that if since nuclear energy was so unpopular, they could score an easy win in knocking it down the drain. They they knew that solar and wind power could not overtake coal. And so, in, in the 1980s and 1990s, um, of course, global warming gains uh, status in the world, as we just talked about. However, in, uh, what was, let's see here, uh, renewable energies like wind and solar had become the the new heads of the environmentalism movement. Um, oh yeah, they can compare to coal and natural gas. Um, and in in fact, every year, uh, roughly three million people die from fossil fuel pollution. Interesting. Yeah. So well, we got our oil, y'all. <laughs> so then. Possibly one of the worst things that could possibly happen happened. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster. It's kind of sealed 19- everybody's fate with, uh, you, or uh, confirmed it. That's a great example of confirmation bias, but unfortunately, poorly timed. What? Uh, the Chernobyl, when everybody was already worried about nuclear energy being, like, dangerous, Chernobyl occurred. Y'all should watch oh, yeah. Chernobyl. You know what I'm talking about? The HBO uh, the, documentary? The HBO uh, series. Have you seen it, Andrew? I, I have not seen it, but I... You should watch it. I think you would love it. It's Yeah. It's, an, and, it's a very interesting documentary, to say the least. But continue. Yeah. I, 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 I definitely a, heard a lot about it researching. This is a side note about Chernobyl, but did you know that the dogs, like the stray dogs that are there, that are lightly radioactive, they've been testing them and sending I them back to America for adoptions as long as they're not, like... They've been testing them to make sure yeah. that they're like safe and okay. I've but you can that. get a lightly radioactive dog. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wears off like after a little while. They just have to get them out of that environment, mm-hmm. and then they're safe to adopt. And I think it's the cutest thing. So they're it's called Chernobyl dogs. Um, I've been following their work for years because um, they've just been like testing the stray dogs out there. Do they have Did a higher instances of like cancer or anything like that? I wonder. Not I mean, so far, no. Yeah, All animals of them have are been... like. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. Humans are like weirdly weak when it comes to radiation resistance. Mm, mm-hmm. Call us weaklings one more time. That. Most biological processes are extremely sensitive to ionizing radiation. Yes. However, if you were to guess how many people died from acute radiation syndrome or sickness, that the, the two are interchangeable. How many would you guess have died because of ARS immediately following the explosion? 
Um, three. At the three mile or the Chernobyl? Uh, Chernobyl. Maybe 10,000, 20,000? 7,400. I'm thinking. Um, 5 to 10,000? On the day of the explosion, 28 people uh, died of ARS. My guess was the closest, y'all. I said three. Wait, wait. Is that was yeah, just on the day that's of? That's just the day after? of yes. the explosion. And then, oh, um, I was so excited it totaled, to win. It totaled of about, like, 54 54 Second. total cases of ARS. I'm still the closest. I was hoping they would say 54 and you're going to go suck it. And you 100,000. <laughs> nope, um, I'm still 54. the closest, you guys. That's interesting. Yes. Um, of course, you know, that, that, that doesn't take into account the thousands that had short and lifespans due to cancer. However, that's, that's still tiny numbers compared to the number that fossil fuels kill every year. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. What's the what's the direct link between fossil fuels and deaths? Um, just the air is harder to breathe. The mafia. The mafia. <laughs> the fossil fuel mafia. That's the direct link. <laughs> they shove coal down people's throats. Oh, uh, asphyxiation. They just pour oil. Down fossil <laughs> fuel asphyxiation. And actually, as a as a as an extreme tangent, um. There's there's one way that that you can scare anyone, okay? What you um, the one way that you do it, is that you have an external threat, pumping carbon dioxide into you. Wait, what? It, yeah, um, have an external threat, and then they hook you uh, they hook you up to carbon dioxide, and you essentially start asphyxiating. Oh. Because there was a, there was a person. Who um, who wasn't really afraid of anything, or afraid uh, of yes. nothing? Yes, Tom and the Fearless is what they called him back in the day. I've read stories of this man. Of carbon dioxide. He went to he went to so many haunted houses. I mean, he... no, this, that's not the person I was talking about. This oh. person like could not feel fear. Megan's um, making up a story about some I'm guy named Tom. Just going on a tangent, interrupting Andrew at every moment. I'm lying. <laughs> While Andrew's Please trying to get a serious to hear what you have to say. Oh, uh, sorry. So yeah, she. Um, they tried scaring her with all sorts of you know normal human fears like spiders or, but um, but none of them really seemed to work. Mm -hmm. Until, they tried. Um, they tried hooking her up to some carbon dioxide. And that was the first time in her life that she felt fear. Interesting. And then they, um, they did the same experiment with regular people and they weren't afraid. Just like, because like, what do you mean hooking they up know the that the scientist dioxide? is going to stop. Like, like they, they changed her air supply from oxygen to carbon dioxide or like... Yeah, that's, that's what they did. I mean, so they just suffocated her, basically. Right? Yeah. Yeah, basically suffocated her. And um, suddenly, she was afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that'll do it. Yeah, that'll, that'll do, do it. it. I mean, your brain is very, very sensitive to uh, carbon dioxide. But the important part of that brain. story that was overlooked is the second thing Andrew said, which is that normal people that were hooked up to this were not afraid. Yes, normal people that were hooked up to this were not afraid because they knew that the that it would just be a short amount of time. That's what they said until they died. They were like, yeah. just, just yeah, a couple just, of seconds yeah. longer and it's not a big deal. I'm not scared. Um, 
<laughs> but if you have like an external threat that won't that won't stop the experiment, um, mm-hmm. then then that's truly terrifying. Because mm. you know that they aren't going to stop. Yeah. True, and that's what's happening. So yeah, basically, Chernobyl happened at the worst time. It mm. it casts a negative image of nuclear energy to this day. And Fukushima in 2011 didn't help either. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. How many people died in Fukushima? Do you have that? I, I, didn't, uh, I didn't look it up, but it's... Mm. I mean, I, we can look it up right now. Look it up right now. But continue um, with your thing. I will come yes. back to it. So, obviously, nuclear reactors are left in a rather negative light. And it's understandable, because most people don't understand how a nuclear reactor works. And they associate it with um, either a nuclear weapon or Chernobyl. Despite, you know, Chernobyl being horribly managed. And that really has to do um, because all three of the disasters that I just mentioned can be attributed Mm -hmm. to one thing. The reactor's overheating. So a reactor is normally pressurized um, because water only melts at 100 Celsius, 212 Fahrenheit. And that is not um, good enough to get a turbine spinning. So they pressurize it so that way water um, evaporates at a much higher temperature. But obviously, when it's pressurized, there is, when it, um, when say, like there is, like for in Chernobyl's case, they they took out the control rods and allowed it essentially allowed the reactor to melt down. Then a, a large amount of gas is produced, and gas uh, water vapor does not have the same um, neutron absorbing tendencies as liquid water does. So it allows the reaction to get out of control, and then suddenly there's more and more steam because the water is getting heated up, and then the reactor. Um, the reactor goes into overdrive and blows its top because of all because of the pref, uh, because of the pressure. Yep. Well, I uh, there has been a recent a recent movement to create a much safer uh, nuclear reactor. It is called the Thorium Molten Salt Reactor. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, excuse me. You got a yes from Dev. Yeah. I don't know, man. I am excited about it. Okay. This is a very, continue. You will explain to us. So, um, let's talk a little bit about Thorium, because other than being named after the best Avenger, don't at me. (laughs) Yo, we are about to have a fight right now. (laughs) I'm telling you. Get at it. (laughs) It is three times more abundant than uranium in the Earth's crust. And it is found um, with a lot of rare earth metals, which I mean, don't let, don't let its name fool you. They aren't rare. They're just, I don't know. I don't actually know why they're called rare earth metals. Because the earth is rare. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, in comparison to other metals, they are rare. Rarer. Not like the rarest things. No. Um, no. I mean, we have them in every single piece of chip 
and today, so not yeah, like right Lamp- uh, and Sirium are extremely important. But, but continue, um, yeah, and the the forum is found with these rare earth uh, elements in, in mm-hmm. like rocks such as um, manganite. And in fact, there's an entire beach in India, I believe, that is covered in manganite, which is about five percent forium. Okay, and that's not mm-hmm. that's not even the best part about it. There's a mine in Idaho. It extracts how many tons? Forty-five hundred tons of forium a year. That's a lot. Jeez. Oh my god. And um, there's also like um some in like enriched forium buried in Nevada as well. Just Great, because so we have something on our soil that we could. Well, yeah, we have something that we can even soil, use. But still. Um, so the isotope of thorium that we want is thorium-232. And it is it is barely measurable um, by radiation detectors. So it's super safe to mine as well. Which one did you say? Thorium, which one? Thorium-232. Okay. Um, and one... One ton of thorium in a in a thorium molten salt reactor, which I shall abbreviate as TMSR, just because that's a mouthful. Otherwise, um, can produce as much uh, energy as thirty five tons of uranium. Wow! And we already Ooh. heard about the energy efficiency of uranium versus, like, cool. I think you said oil before. So yeah, and um, about four hundred tons of thorium could power the entire U.S. for a year. Wow. Oh wow. That's like eleven Idaho mines. Or that we could power we could power eleven USAs with with that one mine in Idaho. <laughs> oh my mm. god. So now now let me compare the thorium salt reactor, the TMSR, versus the light water reactors, which are the reactors that we use um now pretty much everywhere. Uh and the light water reactors will be um will be given the acronym LWR. So when uh, when you mine uranium, you get a bunch of uranium two thirty eight, which is practically useless, and only about seven or zero point seven percent uranium two thirty five, which is what fuel rods um, fuel rods need to have a concentration of five percent uranium two thirty five. So we have to concentrate and enrich the uranium. And um, when when uranium uh, undergoes a fission reaction, it decays into products that are gases, like xenon and krypton. And since they are gases from a solid from a solid fuel rod, because there's no longer solid there, it can cause the fuel rod to become a little um, unstable, which is obviously bad, because reactors uh, uh, LWRs re- require that um, the uranium uh, fuel rods be in a certain position, or else um, it goes haywire. And if they, if they, if one crumbled and shattered and fell to the bottom of the re- the reactor, this was this would indeed cause a meltdown unless it was cleaned up, uh, or unless it was stopped. And um, then you have to stop the reactor to um, clean it up. Which I mean, if there's one reactor powering um, powering the city, they could have a power outage so- shortly. I'm sure that. You could circumvent that with like some mass power generators. 
Like, yeah, but that can hold for some amount of time. But to to just have an entire um, to just have an entire reactor out of commission just because of one broken fuel rod is not necessarily the safest strategy. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, it's not very efficient. Yeah, not efficient is what I meant to say. In 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 the molten salt react, uh, reactor, however, gases can just float up. They don't um, they don't get stuck inside the um, the tubes. And um, also another advantage that um, molten salts have over um, have over regular water is that they can get really hot. And like I mean, like really really hot. They uh, thorium fluoride, which is the which is the, the salt used in the um, molten salt reactor, is a solid until four hundred degrees Celsius. Um, and its optimal reaction temperature is seven hundred degrees Celsius, and it boils at double that, fourteen hundred degrees Celsius. But that's that's so that's like that's boiling water fourteen times over. And so, if there was say a, a leak with the molten salt reactor, the the salt would just instantly solidify. And you know, it's 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 radioactive. It's radioactive, but at least it's not a liquid. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Will they have to pressurize the molten salt reactors just nope. like they pressurize the water ones, or no? Nope. Um, okay. It that's. Um, uh, those temperatures that I just listed are at are at standard temp uh, standard pressure, so they don't have to pressurize the vessel either. So there's no there's no. If Chernobyl had been a um, molten salt reactor, it wouldn't have blown the top off. But I, I imagine the issue. It would still, it would still is... be bad, but it wouldn't it wouldn't spew the radiation everywhere like it did in Chernobyl. Mm-hmm. Right, and I'm guessing that what one of the things that we're getting at is the problem with trying to implement something like this right now has very little to do with the science and more to do with the the public appeal. Oh, yeah. That's what um, I was going to say. In your opinion, what's the main reason that uh, we haven't made this switch, if it does make a lot more sense? Uh, economics. It's just not economically viable to um, do something new versus something that we've been doing for um, pretty much ever since nuclear power was invented. Yeah. Are you saying yeah, but are you saying economically viable because of investment versus uh, public appeal? Or are you saying that it's too it's literally even if we had the support, it's too expensive to implement off the bat? It's I don't think it's too expensive. Uh, I just think that. It's not. People would not be as keen to invest in this new technology. I see. Well, I will say, um, especially considering that federal money is basically all made up anyways and isn't real. <laughs> um, I don't think expense it should play too much into it. But I also get that people like to pretend that it's real. I will real. tell you what plays into it. Do you remember that dude that I hit up? I actually got very interested in the economics of nuclear reactors. Yes, he's Ooh. talking about a... Um, a Congress person for the state of Georgia, not a drug dealer. When he says <laughs> that dude, I hit up. Uh, just I, I in get, case I you're wondering, is there any misunderstanding? Yeah. It, was, yeah. it was, 
He was talking yeah. about a state representative that was on our ballots for the state so, of Georgia. <laughs> a coal power plant costs about three to four billion dollars, and it's operational in two to four years. That is within a, the term span of the politician who sponsored it. And you can see the returns on investment in five years. A nuclear power plant, the starting cost of them are $16 billion. And it takes up to eight to nine years to build them. Mm. And to see a return on profit for cost saving even more. Mm. It takes up to 15 years. Who, which politician in their right mind would sponsor such a thing that would benefit everyone? Send me in, coach. I'll do it. <laughs> I mean, it, it very much is <laughs> politics. Take it like you said, team. we have the money. Yeah. We really have the money. Because instead of opening 10 coal plants, you could open one nuclear plant and supply just as much energy. More. If not more. If not mm-hmm. more, right? And something more but sustainable. Mm-hmm. It's very much that it's... So let's say that General Electric... Do you remember the Voktel power plant that is between South Carolina and Georgia? So it's partly owned by um, Georgia um, Georgia Electric, right? Which one is uh, the biggest Georgia, one? Georgia Power. Georgia Power. And the by the state one. of Georgia <laughs> and South Carolina. Most of the funding comes from the states. The Georgia Power only handles the... Um, construction and manufacturing of it so it's not even the corporations have to put up the money it's states who put up the money anyways mm-hmm. and at the same time it's politicians who put up that money right it's the politicians you elect and they're not going to spend something put money in a black hole that they're not going to see a return for it when they're until their kids try to get into politics right so there's a very much a political dang game that goes on into the economics of nuclear power plants. I feel like even if yeah. the senator representative did sponsor a nuclear power plant, their opponent in the next term would just use exactly. that against them. Be like, right? He did nothing. Exactly. With this money that he put up, and they're like, "Hold on, wait ten more years." So it gets more yeah. and harder for us to think long term when all you care about is getting elected for your next term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. it's um, it's partly why individual companies are um, are investing in the technology into thorium salt reactors. Because I do not believe. Um, do you know what the they, cost of them are? Like approximate. Uh, approximate cost. Um, I don't know. I don't know the approximate cost, but mm-hmm. I assume that it would be slightly lower than a normal reactor. Just because um, the raw material forium is so much more abundant. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, uh, yeah. also, uh, I'll get into a future point, but um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, it gets better. So, uh, fluorine from the forium salts uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, it is very reactive. Um, fluorine is uh, an element that constantly is looking for electrons. Um, if, it, if it doesn't have a complete octet, which is like eight electrons around itself, then it, it, um, it will aggressively try and get them. Um, which is why it's great in reactions, because if you want a reaction to happen, 
Florian will make it happen. So, the thorium fluoride is pumped into graphite tubes in the, in the outer stage of the reactor. And uh, in this case, graphite is both a catalyst and a mediator. It's a mediator for neutrons. Uh, it slows them down, so that way they actually hit things. Because if a neutron is going super fast, the odds that it's going to hit something decreases. So it also acts as a catalyst to make the reaction happen. And an uh, another safety feature that uh, are being designed in these thorium salt reactors is this uh, thing called a cap. I've heard, um, but essentially it's a substance that will melt at a certain temperature um, and that will only happen in a meltdown, like if the reactor overheats. It will melt and then it will drain all the fuel away so that way it can cool down. And going back to the point that thorium fluoride um, has, a boil has a melting point of 400 degrees Celsius, it will, it will um, be cooled down into a solid, which is, uh, again, a lot more manageable to deal with. Mm-hmm. And then let's also talk about the maintenance that it takes to um, make sure that a uh, light water reactor is is working properly. You have to um, uh, in one of the one of the people that um, I researched in um, in this topic said it's like balancing a pencil. You can either choose to balance the pencil on the palm of on the palm of your hand, or you can choose to balance the pencil uh, by hope by suspending it. Because a a um, LWR requires constant um, constant surveillance and um, adjustments. If a like I said, if a if a single fuel rod breaks, then that's a big deal. With a um, with a TMSR, it keeps reusing its fuel. And um, if there is an issue, then it can be shut down and has uh, it can be manually overheated and then have it melt away. And then the problem can be fixed and then it's back up and operational again. And then after 10 years, 87% of a ton of fuel will be non-radioactive and can be extracted. And the other 13% can be stored for 300 years, which mm. three, wow. 300 is a lot shorter than a lot of the other nuclear waste that we have. Plutonium has like a half-life of like 900 to 1,000 years, I think, or that, could, mm. that might even be a lowball. Right. So the fact is this thing takes only 300 years it's uh, a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. Right. So now I'm going to describe the process in which um, a a TMSR like gets its fuel. So yeah. you start off. You start off with thorium two thirty two, and um, when it gets bombarded with a neutron, it becomes thorium two thirty three, which is highly unstable. And uh, very shortly after, um, it will it will turn into protactinium uh, because a neutron will turn into a proton. And then uh, the protactinium will decay into uranium-233 in 30 days. 
Now, uranium-233 is can only be found in reactors. It cannot be found pretty much anywhere else. And if, you, um, if you're comparing it to the other uraniums that I've mentioned, uranium-233 is better than uranium-235, which is already better than uranium-238. And uh, another great advantage about uranium-233 uh, is that it will, fizz it will fission 91.2% of the time. That means that you're going mm. to get a reaction 9 out of 10 times. Whereas with um, like for uh, with uranium two thirty five, it's a lot lower. That's really good for chain reactions. Yes, which is how nuclear um, power works. So ultimately, it ends up becoming a uranium reactor. <laughs> yes, back but to start... square one. <laughs> it starts with the thorium. Yeah, and then when uh, uranium two thirty three splits, um, it um, it produces its products like um, cesium and iodine. And it also releases two to three neutrons. So uh, obviously this creates a massive chain reaction. Yeah, that's... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then since it's, since it's um, all like mostly liquid, it can get drained away and cool down. Yeah. Most uranium reactors only produce two neutrons. And three is an even more of a chain reaction, but I digress. Continue. Yes. Um, so <laughs> to separate the thorium from the protactinium, because you know the protactinium has to decay into um, uranium two two thirty three. Um, it gets um, it gets pumped through a reduction reaction with bismuth which um, essentially uh, dissolves out um, the protactinium. So it's a very useful um, way of doing it. And then the thorium circles, circles back through until you know it becomes protactinium. And then the protactinium in 30 days becomes uranium-233. Um, which is um, which is then uh, fluorinated to become uranium uh, UF4, and that's a liquid. Um, and on the inner core, there are two different types of uh, there are two different types of tools tubes in the inner core. You have the the tubes with the uranium fluoride, and you have the tubes with a lithium beryllium salt. Because the lithium beryllium salt is um, is a coolant, and it will turn the turbines. So it will cool down the reactor while also turning, producing it, the energy. That's interesting. And um, remember, remember how I said that um, it may not seem, uh, remember how I said I'll get to um, like the, I'll get to the uh, economic output. Mm -hmm. So when the uranium splits, it splits into cesium and iodine. And then um, fluorine reacts uh, vigorously with them and uh, forms compounds. Uh, and he heavier elements like uranium um, get turned into a gas after they are uh, fluorinated, which is uh, the process of which you get the, the cesium fluoride, the iodine fluoride. 
and then it get, it it gets um it gets defluorinated um it becomes uf4 when or us six when it's fluorinated but it then gets defluorinated into uf4 again so that we can circle for the reactor again and um you can defluorinate um you can defluorinate uh the materials and there there are uses for them in like medical places like um molybdenum and iodine have and uh, have very prominent uses in uh medicals so it can it can it can serve as sort of a producer of these of these, so like, the byproducts can actually be helpful. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. And then it seems, um, like, it seems like every part of this whole process, it's either a circle or it could be used and sold yeah. as a different product. It seems like a yeah. pretty efficient process to yeah. begin with. And there there are a couple of downsides um with the TMSR. One is that it just um most reactors um use the light water reactor and they don't feel like it's not it doesn't need to be replaced because there are people who have been trained to do it and they know how to do it. Whereas um, the TMSR is a completely new reactor and would require uh, months of training. And possibly one of the um, one of the bigger issues is uranium two thirty two, which is aggressively radioactive. It is mm. horribly radioactive. In fact, if you have if you have a if you have a single atom of uranium-232, it could invalidate an entire nuclear weapon. Just because technology does not like gamma rays. So what it's does that mean for the reactor? What? What does that mean for the reactor? The reactor... Um, if, if there is uranium-232, I don't exactly know what you do with it. Um... It is just, it can be formed as a byproduct, and then that would be, like, really dangerous. Mm. But um, I've, I've heard that um, the TMSRs have several safety measures in check to make sure that um, the uranium-232 is kept and handled safely. Okay. And um, one of the, one of the um, ideals of introducing the TMSRs is running them alongside the um, already existing light water reactors. Um, because, like I said, people don't want to override what already exists. Mm -hmm. Because it's, um, it's the devil you know versus uncertainty. Right. Yeah. That definitely However, makes sense. All in all, I I personally believe that the um, the TMSR is so much better than uh, any light water reactor. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's like you were saying at the beginning, even trying to do something is better than trying to do nothing. Yeah. In fact, I'll, I'll even look it up right now. Um, how do... Um, TMSRs um, deal with uranium-232. Well, it, ha it has a half-life of around 69 years, but, you know, 
um, over here. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest. A little bit of this went pretty over my head. This is the first I've really delved into any of this. I think yeah. if we had a periodic table, I think it would make. Yeah, and he, uh, I think that also knowing what an isotope is would help. Um, and well, an isotope, you got me there. Yeah, I'll give you that. that. <laughs> an, an isotope is basically just the number of protons and the number of neutrons. Mm. I hmm. barely passed chemistry in college. I was so. going to say, yeah, you're really... That's true. As uh, the, We're engineers, but none of us are in uh, <laughs> chemical engineering or biomedical, so... No, I wanted to drop chemistry, say, but I had to take it. Um, yeah. You say we are engineers. Uh, I'm not. It's basically <laughs> different weights of certain elements. Yes. You know, they're naturally yeah. occurring. In, uh, you know, sometimes you can make them, sometimes you just find them. Right. Yeah. Well, that was very interesting. Um, definitely gives a little bit of perspective into how little we're trying when it comes to climate change fighting oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, fighting our uh, non-renewable resources working against that because it doesn't really sound like we're trying anything it does sound like there are solutions there um, but it doesn't really sound like we're attempting to try them or even look into how we could try them <laughs> yeah and I mean it's not, it's not like the, it's not like the Trump in, uh uh, the Trump administration has any uh, conflict of interest. I mean, it's not like he's friends with several coal, um, <laughs> several coal um, owner or coal plant owners, and uh, oil execs. Yeah, it's it's yeah. not like that's a thing. That no, definitely not. It's almost as if the head of the EPA is an ex <laughs> <laughs> oil lawyer. <laughs> mm. And. I mean that's that's that just wouldn't happen, you know, because then he'd be biased against everything that's happening. Yeah, you know, draining the swamp—that's what yeah. he wanted. Draining the swamp. Well, uh, we look forward to the additional information that you learn and bring to us, um, especially going to college for this. I think you're definitely oh, yeah. going down the right. But, but 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 then I'm an expert at that point. <laughs> well, you are that's an expert. Fair. You're allowed to be an, I'm expert. an expert. We just I, there's can't so be. much that I don't know about this process. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. But the important thing is that we're not experts on the subject. We're excited for you to go off to college, become an expert on the subject, and come back to us with your expertise yeah. because we'll right. we'll be sitting here on the information that you gave us and nothing else. Everything yeah, just, that you just heard was given to you by a 17-year-old. <laughs> so feel that in your soul. Yeah. Thank you very much for telling me more insights on the thorium reactors. Was, yeah, yeah, thank you cool. for coming on, Andrew. We're going to do our quick outro. Um, one, one last note. Um, oh, yeah. Please. Um, I tried to I tried to get in touch with both of the um, the candidates for senator um, for Colorado. Uh -huh. uh, un unfortunately, the only the only response I got was the automated message from Gardner saying, <laughs> "Thank you for contacting me. I appreciate hearing from you and know the and know um, what issues are most important to you. I ask for your patience as we work to respond uh, to the high volumes of mail my office receives each day." I sent that on the 11th of August. It is now the 23rd. <laughs> mm. And then uh, yeah. I also... That high volume of emails they're getting. <laughs> I also tried to contact Hick Hickenlooper, but I haven't gotten anything back as well. Well, but I would be so surprised to... 
here if they even know even a quarter as much as you do about this subject because I bet you they don't. And these are things that they're voting on. And I bet you they don't even know as much as a 17-year-old. Not to be diminishing of your knowledge at all, but at the same time, thinking about our representatives and our candidates, knowing less than a 17-year-old about this is kind of um, disheartening to me. Uh, And uh, I'm I'm just going to... um, I did find um, stuff on uh, Hickenlooper's website that he was uh, very supportive of trying to get to net zero emissions by, tr- uh, I think it was 2040 is what he said. Um, but I'm just going to uh, make an assumption that because um, Gardner seems to be a Trumpist, that he would mm-hmm. also share some of the standard um, like Trump values on global warming. I'll tell you 100%, he is. He is not worth your time. Do not vote for Cory Gardner. And uh, not just to kind of piggyback off of that, you'd be surprised at the number of uh, Democratic politicians mm. that do support zero emissions but are uh, starkly against nuclear uh, oh, yeah. solutions for renewable energy. But the- also, I mean, to tip our hat a little bit towards the Democratic nominations for this year, uh, Bernie Sanders, AOC, Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, they have all gotten together and discussed um, where they can meet on more progressive policies because Joe Biden is the nominee, but he's fairly centrist uh, for... Yeah a liberal and a lot of people are really disappointed to see that because um bernie really does have such a strong following so they've met and they've talked and um the uh climate change activism is something that they have decided uh that joe biden can be a little bit more active and being involved in and i'm not saying that's you know 100 percent a solution but voting is definitely like a bus stop not a marriage so any work that they're doing to try and get us closer to where we want to be is definitely something that uh, I want to at least commend and pay attention to and see what they're see what they're trying to focus on um, going forward. Add that to the times that Megan has told you to go out and vote. I was going to say, so this is my, you know, weekly PSA Please go vote. It's so important. Please, 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 please go vote. And just just as a uh, commendation as well to Andrew, uh, you know he definitely listens to our podcast because that was a <laughs> reference to us saying that we'd be giving out uh, a Starbucks gift card to whoever could accurately name episodes one through ten how many times Megan has told somebody to go out and vote. <laughs> so. I care so much about people going and voting. Um, and Andrew knows that about me just yeah. from, you know, knowing me uh, for his whole life. And I, I, I am so bummed that I just miss out on voting. You do. But like at the same months. time, um, you will be a part of the next congressional uh, voting cycle. in Colorado. So pay attention. Local elections are arguably I mean, more than federal elections as far as what has a daily impact on your life. I've worked for city and um, county governments for like the past 10 years. And I promise you the things that show up on those ballots have a much, much greater impact on your day-to-day life than anything that will show up on a federal ballot. Mm -hmm. So pay attention, vote every election cycle, every two years. I think 
There's ones that come up every year, but definitely every two years you're voting for your representatives, you're voting for your governors, your mayors, um, your Supreme Court justices. Those types of things really matter in your state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Andrew. Thank you, for Andrew, for coming on. My little brother has turned was, out to be such a big smarty. It was, it was a whale of a time uh, researching mm. this because I, I got yeah, so know. hopeful. And, that, mm. and then I realized that uh, a lot of people have a negative stigma towards uh, nuclear energy. Uh, if, I mean, there's a big rabbit hole that I was also trying to avoid going down when it comes to trying to convince the general public of anything. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, that's kind of the biggest roadblock, right, to any mm -hmm. sort of progressive change is convincing the general public to go along with it. Uh, and just to wrap it back around to Megan's point, I mean, the only way that we're going to be able to get any progressive policies passed is if we have a Democratic majority in Congress. Mm -hmm. So go out and vote. Go out and vote. If, uh, and if even doing um, what Andrew did, reaching out to representatives, you know, um, they might not themselves personally have uh, responses to you. However, um, they do have sort of like search engine optimization filters uh, where they look at what appears frequently in their inboxes. So the questions that you ask, even if you're not getting responses, uh, automatically uh, put something on their docket that might not have been there before just because multiple people are in their inboxes asking those questions. Um, so that's also important and has merit. Um, oh no. Um, Disregard that sound, please. That was going to oh, be no. really bad. Our cat is going uh, crazy. So we're going to outro music really quickly. Uh, uh, this has been Not an Expert Podcast with Megan, Kevin, Dev, Michael, and our special guest, Andrew. Um, thank you for tuning in this week. And uh, we will talk to you all uh, next Wednesday because this should be a Saturday episode. Thank you all. Please go vote. Have a great week. This is not an expert podcast with Jess Andrew. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> that was great. I'm glad Andrew was a part of that music. Yes, Andrew. <laughs>